Hey, welcome to the Conventional Sniper Podcast. My name is Justin Coletti and I'm your host. Today's our first podcast ever. Um, I've been kind of thinking about this for a hot minute, probably, I don't know, a year or so. And uh, for a long time, I was kind of like, ah, no, I'm not going to do a podcast, man. Only nerds do podcasts. And I was kind of watching guys like Jocko Willink and, <clears throat> and I realized that, uh, excuse me, that, you know, podcasts are, are really making their way around and it's maybe, you know, something for our generation. Uh, and I figured, hey, I, you know, reach out to those in my community, in the sniper community, and, and spin up a podcast on the conventional side. Um, you know, the intent of this podcast is essentially to kind of fill the gap between uh, the precision rifle civilian podcast and the special forces type podcast. There isn't really, at least to my knowledge, a conventional uh, Army or Marine Corps sniper podcast that's specific to snipers. You know, things that, that need to be discussed uh, uh, for younger generations is, A, how do you get into a sniper section? Where did, where did you start? Where did I start? You know, how, how did others get there? Um, you know, I want to be able to fill that gap and help those around us get into that, that mindset, that community, um, you know, kind of lead the way forward and have some, some deep and serious hard discussions about the future of combat, the future of the sniper within the force. Uh, as we know, the Marine Corps is having right now a, a bit of a hard time. Uh, I just saw an article the other day that, <clears throat> excuse me, showed that 25,000 Marines had been EAS'd or let go from the Marine Corps due to, um, we'll say for a lack of better terms, inappropriate actions, you know, unfavorable things. Um, here nor there, you know, the Marine Corps is a great organization. I, you know, I didn't spend any time in the Marine Corps. I was an Army, Army guy my entire career, but you know, I've met plenty of Marines along the way that are just overall just good guys. So uh, it's kind of saddening. But either way, you know, that's the rules rules of the, the UCMJ and, and the commanders that be. So anyway, moving on. <clears throat> so the intent of this podcast, like I said before, is to kind of fill those gaps and, and make sure that we have some exciting stuff to talk about. But uh, so we'll get into who I am and why I joined and when I joined. Uh, I joined in 2008. I joined the Army as actually as a, as a regular infantryman. <clears throat> I had no other background. I, I hadn't really started shooting until I got into the Army. My drill sergeant kind of taught me the way uh, of how to do certain things. Uh, it was an interesting career path, and I realized that uh, being in the infantry was the right path for me. But at the end of the day, I was kind of searching for something more. Uh, and so when I got to my, my first duty station was 10th Mountain. I was with the 2nd Battalion, 87th Infantry Regiment. Um, great group of, uh, of young men. Uh, there were some battle Harvard veterans within the community. We had some guys that had been in the invasion of Iraq, um, and we had some guys that had spent some serious time in Afghanistan. Um, but uh, I kind of felt there's something more missing. And as I left 10th Mountain, I went to uh, the 1st ID at Fort Riley. And I was assigned to the 2nd Battalion, 34th Armored Regiment. Now, I know what you're thinking if you're a light infantry guy that, ugh, armor, mechanized, it sucks. I'll agree with you. It sucks. There's a lot of work that goes into mechanized, completely different from, from the light infantry. But while I was there, I had the opportunity to try out for a sniper section. Um, and that's kind of where I felt uh, most at home. There's a great group of guys there. Um, and I'm glad I met those gentlemen along the way. Um, I met some very interesting people. Uh, one of those people was my sniper section sergeant, Jedediah Robbins. We called him Rob. Six foot four guy, like 225. Um, kind of an awkward guy. Just really awkward. But, uh, you know, I'm hard, hard pressed to find any guy in the sniper community that isn't awkward. Um, they all have their u- little unique kinks and quirks and so on and so forth. So, anyway. So during that tryout process, it's about two weeks long, uh, I was asked one very particular question that really set, set forth in motion um, 
what what it meant to be within this community. And, and Rob asked me, he goes, hey, you know, all these test stuff that you're doing during triathlon are all great and your physical fitness is good. I can improve upon that stuff and we can, you know, teach you how to shoot. That's the easy part of it. We can teach you how to be a reconnaissance guy. That's the easiest part of it. But the hard part is something that you have to think about yourself and, and that is, are you willing to dedicate the rest of your life to this craft, to being a sniper? Are you willing to dedicate the rest of your life? And I thought about that for all of 0.2 seconds, and I said, absolutely. I'm ready to, to be part of this community. And then the other hard question he asked me was, are you ready to spend your hard-earned money to develop yourself as a sniper? Because the Army, at the end of the day, will not help you develop. The Army only gives you the basics. They give you a sniper school, they give you a rifle, they give you some ammo, and they say, off you go. Meet the standard qualifications, and now you're a sniper. Qualified. Boom. Check the box. Uh, you know, the, the Army looks at snipers as an um, outcome-based skill, not a performance-based skill. They look at how many numbers they have versus, versus how many proficiently trained snipers they have a sniper who's just come out of sniper school according to the army is just as well trained as a guy who's had five years in the craft and that's just the wrong answer and that's part of the reason why for this podcast i wanted to start it up is that if you're a young whippersnapper or a young sniper coming out of sniper school and you haven't been asked that question of are you willing to dedicate the rest of your life to this craft then you need to stop take a hard look and think about this craft and and figure out if that's something that you want to continue to do um, because it's essential. Um, the people around you when you do deploy, if you deploy, and I know we're transitioning to a peacetime army, but they require that you progress those skills outside of the army. So you must go to some precision rifle uh, civilian competitions. And I, I'm hard pressed, pressed, excuse me, hard pressed to find any uh, sniper, whether it be conventional or unconventional, as in the, the special forces world, who has not had their butt kicked on their first civilian match. And who do not walk away being humble, uh, realizing that they need to go back to the drawing board and rethink. Uh, civilian shooters, just the knowledge, even today, uh, compared to you know when I joined, um, the knowledge is far ahead of, of what uh, the Army can produce at this time. And let's not get started about the Marine Corps. We all know the Marine Corps is, uh, you know, as they like to say, the crane eaters, but um, their sniper is a little bit behind. Their courses are great, but as far as uh, catching up on other stuff, they're kind of last of the, the table, but... <clears throat> Regardless, I digress. So, um, you know, we need to we need to look at that and think hard inside of ourselves if this is something you want to be a part of for the rest of your life. And if you do, hey, welcome to the community. So, uh, that being said, uh, I understand there's a class that graduated from the Army Sniper School just the other day. If uh, you're one of those cats that uh, listens to this podcast soon, and I, and I hope you do, congratulations. Welcome to the first step in being a sniper. You, if you thought that you've accomplished things by shooting into the school or spending your year-long uh, time trial, so to speak, in section, and now you've accomplished being a sniper, and now you're an army sniper. Nope, not even close. All this information is perishable. You must continue to study. You must learn the ways of being a true sniper. Uh, you ask, I'm sure if you ask guys like Chris Kyle, that dude just didn't go to sniper school and then call it quits. Or, you know, what about, um, you know, any other sniper that's ever been in the invasion of Iraq that had hard times fighting in, in urban combat? Ask that guy. If he just picked up a rifle every now and then and was like, yep, I'm a sniper. Got it. No, that guy, that guy definitely took time, did his dime washer drills, did his dry fires, thought about his wind, collected his data, did everything every single day. He wakes up, he eats, he breathes, he sleeps, sniper, 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 and data. Um, if you don't have your data down, you don't have your wind calls down, you don't have your experience down, you're going to have a hard time in combat. So, um, 
Yeah, so to get back to the section, and, and Rob was asked asked me that question, and I knew in about 0.2 seconds that this is where I wanted to be. Um, later on in life, I didn't realize uh, how much I would need the community. Um, you know, I got out of the Army in 2017, and there's a gentleman who's an F-18 pilot, and he said to me, congratulations, man, welcome to the civilian world. It sucks. Uh, what are you going to do to feed the rat? And I was like, ah, well, I don't know what that means, man, feed the rat. What what does that mean? Because, because dude, you've, you've been in a world where you've hunted men, and... Uh, just like Ernest Hemingway said, uh, you will never really care for anything else thereafter. Now you have to find a way to channel that frustration uh, and you need to feed the rat inside of your head that wants to go, 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 go. And ultimately, ultimately the guy was right. I mean, uh, ever since I've got up, all I've, all I've tried to do uh, is just find a way to be back in. Uh, and unfortunately, my time is done. My generation has come to a close. But there are those that are still in or are about to begin that need, uh, hopefully, this podcast to help them out. So... Uh, you need to set yourself up in the long term to continue to feed that rat. And precision rifle is definitely a way to do that. So if you're a guy that just got out uh, or is getting out and you're like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to go pick up a nine to five job or I'll just go to college. I promise you it's, it's not that easy. That's not, it's not how the civilian world works, dude. Um, you know, at least in this, I'm, I'm from New Hampshire and at least the state of New Hampshire, it's a fire at will state. So if they don't like you, sorry, dude, your job's terminated. Um, you need to, to find a way to vent the frustration and the gap between the military world and the civilian world uh, and precision rifle, <clears throat> excuse me, precision rifle and the community is definitely the way to do that. So um, I know coming up uh, August 2nd and 3rd in Denver, Colorado, 2nd, 3rd and 4th that, that weekend. So two weeks from now, uh, we've got the first ever combined uh, United States Army Sniper Association and Marine Corps Scout Sniper Association gathering. Um, if you're just in the area and you want to come check it out, I'm sure... There's some guys that just uh, became an enlistee in the Army and don't really know what it's about. And uh, I'm sure there's someone, someone watching the recruiter somewhere and said, how do I be a sniper? Because I know in a recruiting office, they've got a cardboard cutout of a dude in a ghillie suit. How do I know this? The local recruiting office down the street from me has got one, yet I can't go sign up and be a sniper. I've got to earn my way in, so to speak. But uh, if you want to figure out how to get there, coming to the gathering is probably a great place to go. Um, if you're a recruiter in that area, especially if you're an infantry recruiter in that area, and you're looking to kind of sweep up a recruiter too, it's probably a good idea to stick your neck out a little bit and ask around and see if uh, see if you can observe or learn some things from those snipers in the area. But anyway, we'll get off that topic. That's more recruiting side. So um, some gear stuff, some of the stuff that I do for precision rifle and where I've gone from the Army. So I started on the M110 SAS, the semi-automatic sniper system. Uh, it's essentially just an AR-10 and 308, and I'm sure there's a Knights Armament sales rep right now that's just rolling over in his grave to say it's not just an AR-10, it's a it's a CAC gun, and the CAC gun is the top of the line. Well, buddy, this isn't 2004, and it's definitely not. So um, they're still good guns for what they do, but uh, they're not the top of the line, and we know that. So um, they'll get the job done. That's all you need. And then you've, we've, uh, from there, I, I progressed into the M2010, which is a bolt-action Remington 700, essentially, in 300 Win Mag. Um, I was not with the old generation that had the M24s. I personally own an M24, an Army Nutrition M24, and it is a great gun. And I'll be honest, man, that 308, that thing kicks like a freaking mule compared to these 6mm Creedmoor stuff or just anything in six millimeter, I think bucks, you know, if I was to slap a donkey on the ass and it was to kick me in the face, that's definitely an M24. Um, I've got the, the Leopold Mark IV, the mill dot reticle in it. And, and it's a good gun. I like it. It's accurate taking a 175 grain 308. So it's, it's a good gun, but 
a little before my generation. So um, the M2010 and 300 Win Mag is a little bit more up my alley, especially uh, I, I just fell in love with bolt guns. I don't, uh, I'm not a big fan of the semi-auto stuff, but the bolt gun stuff is nice. So, so if you're looking in the civilian world to pick up a bolt gun, there are, on, there's so many options out there, it's ridiculous. Um, if you're just looking, uh, here's what I advise. I advise one thing, you go to a civilian match with a buddy. You don't shoot the first match. Just go for a day, find a local club match, go for the day and watch, observe. Um, watch wind, watch mirage. Look through people's spotting scopes. Find out what gear you need, need, not want, need, and what gear you don't need but you want. Um, some examples of that are you don't need to buy uh, the top-of-the-line precision rifle. You don't need to go out and buy a, oh, I don't know, uh, you don't need to go out and have a, a carbon-proof barrel put in there, you, you know, or anything like that. You can literally just go and buy a Remington 700 and shoot in production class or shoot in the club match. Learn, uh, you know, about wind. Learn about ballistics. Learn how to collect data. Learn just everything about the sport before you try to go pro. And even when you get to pro, I'm hard-pressed to find anyone that, that doesn't need help. Um, you know, the community is pretty tight in, that, in the civilian world and in the, in the shooting community uh, and the sniper world. Everyone's willing to help everyone. And this is probably one thing about why I jumped into this craft and this, this skill set and mindset is this is the masterless craft. Technology is advancing so quickly, so rapidly, and, and you can't keep up with it. And then most of all is wind. As, as much as, as bullet ballistics uh, keep up with ever-changing atmospheric conditions, wind changes on a dime. And no bullet has the perfect remedy to, to buck that wind constantly and make sure you get the perfect shot every time. And I know there's some guys in Arkansas and Kansas that learned on 35-mile-an-hour winds where if you come to the Northeast, you're, you're lucky if you see a 15-mile-an-hour wind. Um, we have more humidity here than, say, Kansas, where it's mostly dry heat. But, you know, when I was in Kansas and at Fort Riley, I learned on 25, 35, 40-mile-an-hour winds. However, that wind was just one constant straight, you know, wind across across the plains. It wasn't gusting up to 40 miles an hour because if it was gusting up to 40 miles an hour, that'd be a hard day to shoot. You know, at some point in time, you just kind of have to call it quits when you have things gusting up to 40. But if it's consistent at 40, then it's essentially one, you know, obviously one constant wind speed. But... You're not fighting with wind going from 40 to 30 to 20 back up to 40 and that sort of stuff. And you'll see a lot of that um, in the Northeast. You'll have it at one second be 4 miles an hour. Next thing you know, it's 20 miles an hour. And that that change in wind speed is, is definitely a pain in the butt to learn. But um, it can be done. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, having a good caliber is definitely uh, essential to learning how to, to shoot wind. If you end up with a 308, kind of some rules to learn is like every four miles an hour, you begin to see some effects on that bullet where 300 wind mag is every five miles an hour and like six, five Creedmoor would be uh, six miles an hour. So kind of keep that in mind when you're thinking about it, uh, you know, at distance and stuff. So moving past uh, bullets, when you get to in guns, when you get to stocks, there are just an un- ungodly amount of stocks out there. You can get everything from Magpul to KRG to just Gunworks makes custom stocks. There's guys that make their own custom stocks out of their garage, you know. Getting a synthetic stock on your rifle, like say from, you know, a straight Remington 700 that's literally a stock hunting a hunting stock, you can use that totally. Um, you don't need to buy a stock right away. What you need is a gun and some ammo and a scope. That's what you need. Um, you know, when you get to your scope side, 
there are a lot of guys that think that they can just go with the duplex reticle, which is just a straight crosshair. They set it in their deer cabinet, and uh, once a year they, they take it out of their gun, or excuse me, their gun cabinet, and they set, take it out of their gun cabinet. They go down to their local range or their, their field. They zero it at 90 degrees with 100% humidity or 90 degrees and no humidity, and they put it away in their gun, gun cabinet or their gun safe, and then they take it out in December when they go to deer hunt. That's, that's not how, <laughs> dude, that's not how ballistics work. I mean, I got it. Sometimes you're shooting a deer at 100 yards, but let's be honest. You're going to be off, you know, just based on that temperature change going from 90 miles in, or 90 degrees to, to 26 degrees. That's a huge change in temperature. That means you have a slower burn rate in your powder. So when it's at 90 degrees, your powder is going to burn faster. Um, <clears throat> and when it's colder, the powder is going to burn slower. Yes, it's milliseconds in difference, but, but it's still changing. And that, that computes to mils or minutes in difference. You know, and I'm, I don't want to get into the specifics of how much it's going to change because you know, I don't know what caliber you're shooting. That's going to be specific. But for my rule of thumb, it's every 10 degrees, it's basically a mil change or, you know, it'd be a minute or so. But, um, yeah, you just can't, you can't go and shoot that deer rifle once a year and expect it to go ahead and tag you up a deer come, come wintertime. But just make sure yourself, you have your good scope. Make sure you're shooting it uh, throughout the year. Make sure you understand that gun. Spending time behind the gun. Like I said, getting a gun, getting ammo, getting a, you know, and getting a scope. That's all you need. That's all you need to get into this sport and to get into this craft. This is just get out in the range and practice. And, you know, I will be honest. A couple months ago, I picked up a precision rifle, a Ruger precision rifle in 22. And uh, my mom's farm, we have a 100-yard field in the back. And I went and set some steel targets up. And that's where I practice. I practice a 100-yard field with some 22 ammo. Uh, you know, and it cost me $50 for 500 rounds, uh, 500 rounds of the six, five Creedmoor would be, you know, about 550 or $600. So for $600, I could shoot a lot of 22, like a lot. I'd be sending a thousand rounds, thousand more rounds down range, you know, than you could, than you could keep up unless, unless you have you know, copious amounts of cash to buy a couple, you know, thousand rounds of, six five or whatever to, to keep up with my 22 expenditure like good luck to you but 22s gets affected a little bit more by wind so you learn quickly but so yeah so the other things that will help too is uh suppressors suppressors keep the noise level down not too long ago there's the hearing protection act that was trying to get pushed through and i think that's great but um dude atf man if you're if you ever listen to this atf you guys have got to clean that stuff up over there you guys are like a year wait for a suppressor imagine if my car muffler which is a suppressor, had to be checked by the ATF. I'm pretty sure that stuff would get taken care of instantly. It's no different. The difference, you know, it's no different having a, a, a suppressor on a car or a suppressor on a firearm. The job is the the tool is to reduce audible noise, which is good for everyone involved. So I don't know why, uh, you know, we're not we're not looking at suppressors. Anyway, that's more political. So gear. Um, when I went to sniper school, I, I didn't have. Uh, gear. I showed up with a sock, literally a, a GI issued sock full of sand. That's all I had. That's what my, my sniper team leader taught me. He was like, Hey dude, you need a sand sock. It's literally a sand sock and that will help you balance the gun in the rear. Um, none of this just tucking your arm out of the elbow thing or, or not using a rear bag. You always need to have your rear bag. Um, and it doesn't need to be a bag per se. It can be literally a sand full of sock. Uh, just as an example, I was helping out uh, the local range the other day and uh, I left like an idiot. I left my uh, short action or short, uh, one of my precision uh, bags. It was like a solo sack or something. And I left it at the range. At least I think that's where I left it. And I cannot find it. 
So I, you know, I was like, dude, I got to go to the range again. I don't want to spend another $70 on a bag. Like that's just expensive. And I understand, you know, companies got to make their money, but that's expensive. So I literally went and grabbed a wool work sock that I wear in the winter and uh, went outside and got some, some t- uh, sandbox sand and filled it up. And I was at the range today thinking about the podcast and I was like, oh man, cool. I got my sweet sand sock. It cost me all of sacrificing a work sock with chocolate labs, like the dog on the front of it, you know? So I sacrificed uh, my work sock with beach sand and it works just fine. You know, I don't have to go and buy that $80 sand sock. I mean, don't get me wrong. Now, keep in mind that those sand socks do have some advantages to them. They're not going to get wet. And if they do get wet, it's not going to absorb water. When sand gets wet, it gets heavy. And, uh, we, you know, we have a saying in the Army that ounces equal pounds and pounds equal pain. If I've got wet sand in my bag, that's just adding a few extra pounds. And that's something I don't need necessarily as a sniper. So if you want to go and spend an 80 bucks because ounces equal pounds and pounds equal pain, hey, do you check Parallax Mill and send it. I agree with you. Go spend that 80 bucks. And we all know the Army is not going to give you that. That's for sure. The Marine Corps certainly is going to give it to you. You know, maybe if you're Special Forces, you might get some cool high-speed stuff like that. But, yeah. So um, having that sand sock or that, that larger bag to go ahead and set on unconventional positions, that's, that's key to have definitely as a sniper or even just as a civilian shooter. Do you need it? No, you don't need it. Does it, does it make shooting easier? Absolutely it does. But you don't need it. So... Yeah, field expedient way, like I said, just put some sand in a sock. But um, kind of moving up towards the chassis a little bit or the stocks, bipods. Bipods help all the time, man. Bipods, you can get cheap bipods, Harris bipods. You can get Atlas bipods, which are two or 300 bucks a bipod. I got my Atlas bipods used. Actually, I got a blend. I'm sorry. I got I got blend bipods off their website. So I know they sell blends every now and then. I haven't been on, I haven't been on the website in a little bit, but I do know they sell blend bipods but um, you can get anywhere from $300 bipods to $20 bipods so tripods man tripods if you are a conventional sniper if you're in the marine corps if you're in the army tripods should literally be your life you can use them as a rear bag you can use them support your rifle Um, they there are there are options on the market for $100 tripods Uh, in fact the same company who makes the hog saddle shadow tech LOC is I think their name Shadow Tech, they make a, a tripod that's a hundred bucks, and that doesn't come with a ball head, but it's got the either uh, I think it's a three eighth or a quarter inch, uh, uh, yeah, three eighth or a quarter screw in there for you to go ahead and put uh, uh, your hog saddle on. So you basically it's, like, it's a direct it's a direct mount, so you can use that, or you can go ahead and get the ball head for an extra like a couple hundred bucks, and and you can put that ball head on there. But I think, I think the uh, Marine Corps issues a tripod. I think it's the Bushnell tripod, tactical tripod, with a hog saddle. It comes with a teacup of ball head type attachment. At least I know in the Army, that's what, that's what we got when we were at sniper school. So uh, you should be able to get that in the Army. If not, go spend the 100 bucks. Get yourself a tripod. And if, hey, if you're, if you're a sniper section sergeant right now, whether in the Marine Corps and the Army and your guys aren't at this point shooting off tripods, you need to go back to the drawing board and reevalu- reevaluate your training plan. If, if a guy, if a pig goes off to sniper school and he comes back a hawk, he should be ready to shoot with a tripod all the time. And you should have team drills. Hey, set up your tripod an X amount of time. There should be a standard for employment of tripod to, to first round impacts. There should be that standard. And there should be a standard for different ranges. So for say, for example, if, if I am expected to 
set my tripod up and hit a target at 300, 300 yards. We'll just keep it simple. I should be able to do it in under 20 seconds. If I'm going for 600 yards, I should have 35 seconds. If I'm going for 800 yards, I should have 45 seconds. Something along those lines. I mean, 45 seconds for a shot, you know, at 800 with a tripod deployment, that's a long time. But that's what you should be striving for, setting up a time for employment of tripod to first rounds on target. There should be a standard for that. There should be an engagement time and a qualification for that standard across the entire army because tripods are essential at this point. Um, and you should also teach your guys how to make feel expedient tripods uh, and even bipods, you know, tying three sticks together with some 550 cord or some bungees, things like that. You know, take away their equipment. Say, hey, your equipment's broken. You need to, you need to make a tripod. I mean, let's be honest. Shit breaks all the time. It's made by the lowest bidder. There's a private in the army somewhere, and privates will break everything. So teach them how to be field expedient. So um, the other thing is a sling and a kestrel. Slings are important because, hey, when you're using a tripod, it helps you secure the gun into the tripod. Slings can attach to your belt. You can carry the gun that way. It will help you. If, let's say you don't have a tripod. You have to take a standing shot. Wrapping your arm around that sling and allowing it to tuck the gun further into your body so you can take a shot is, is critical. Um, I know the M110s, at least in the Army side, they come issued with a sling. Sling gets the job done, but there are better slings out there. It's really how you make, I guess you'd say, it's really how you make the gear work for you. So sling it, sling it, sling it. Also, if you're in the civ civilian precision rifle series, or just in precision rifle in general, general, whether it be, you know, the National Rifle League (NRL) or Precision Rifle (PRS), have a freaking sling, bro. Have a sling because you slinging that gun on your shoulder in between stages is gonna save you from a lot of heartache from getting harped on about safety. And I know guys love this suitcase carry shit, and I know everyone's been on the kick about it, so I might as well get it off on the first podcast so then I can say I did my due diligence. Don't suitcase carry. Suitcase carry. Even in the Army when you had a carrying handle on your gun, 240 Bravo, it's got a carrying handle. If I caught my Joe carrying a 240 through the, the carrying handle, you're dead. I'm going to find you and I'm going to smoke the dog crap out of you. Carrying handle is not for carrying. A carrying handle, at least on a machine gun, is so that you can do barrel changes with it. That's why it has a little button on there. Yes, it's called a carrying handle. Got it. Track him, bro. I understand what it says. However, it's to do barrel changes on because no one's going to touch a hot barrel. Use it as intended. There's teeth in those barrel systems. Don't wreck it by constantly moving the handle back and forth. That being said, that same concept kind of applies over to sniper rifles. For a long time, the, the suitcase carry was so that people could grab their scopes or would stop grabbing their scopes rather when they carried their gun around. Like, dude, you're putting some pressure on your scopes. That used to be a fragile piece of equipment. You don't want to put any undue pressure on your scope because you don't know what that mechanism is like inside. Yes, there are companies that have their, their warranty, but do you really want to take the time to send that scope all the way back, get a new one all the way back to you, go out and re-zero again? That's, that's potentially a whole month off of training, dude. I don't want to waste that time. I could have gone to the range two or three more times. So protect, protect that scope. And now I understand that the, the mechanism or the, I don't want to say the device, but the, the suitcase carry piece of equipment that you can buy was there initially to protect your scope when it's being transported. Now that I can see, hey, you're putting in a, in a, a, a bag where the gun, like a gunfighter bag where the, the gun slides in the, the back of the pack and it helps protect that scope. Tracking that, man. I got it. 
that makes sense to me. But carrying around from that, that's a no-go. Um, that's kind of off. The, we'll get off the sling topic there, but onto the Kestrel. There are uh, many ways to learn your data. Kestrels help. They are kind of some complex machines, and you got to learn your way around them a little bit, and you're going to have some trial and error, which is fine. You know, it makes this sport a little fun, but um, <clears throat> always, you know, always going back to the old school hard paper way is not, not a bad way. If you kind of have some base knowledge of what your holder is supposed to be based on the temperatures, go ahead and just grab a pen and paper and confirm what your Kestrel says. Also, if you want to get some, some uh, phone-based app, Streelock Pro uh, is a great app, and that's spelled S-T-R-E-L-O-K Pro. I think it's like five bucks. It's on Android and, and Apple. Um, I use that to confirm what my Kestrel is saying, and then I shoot the data and see what the differences between the two are. And I have had some differences, like a, like a, maybe a half a mil or so at, at worst case scenario, and I've had that. So make sure uh, you confirm your data all the way around. Kestrel is good. Um, if you put your phone on airplane mode, dude, you can rock 30 hours of battery life on an iPhone using Streelock Pro. Um, just make sure you have a backup, backup battery if you're on some of these competitions like the Mammoth Sniper Comp and et cetera, et cetera. So, um, or Sniper Side Cup. I'm sure that's a pretty hard one. But there's another one. Oh, Badlands. It's the Badlands competition out in out on the West Coast. I think it's Washington. I think that's where it is. They, uh, that's a pretty tough competition from what I've heard. And I haven't been out there to, to that one. I've gone down and saw saw Mammoth, and that's a pretty hard uh, pretty hard competition as it is. And I, I didn't go last year. I went the year before, so 2017 actually 2018, I think it's in January, but I went to two competitions ago and watched that, and I was there as a representative from a company and kind of doing some work, and I was watching some stuff, and it's still a hard competition, some really good, fun stages, um, but uh, yeah, anyway, make sure you, all your data is confirmed, and make sure when you change locations, like say you go from New Hampshire to Maryland, and I'm about to tell you a sweet story here, um, make sure your gun is zeroed. So I, I went this first this this year I went to the first match of the year. It's in Maryland and it's put on by War Rifles, W A R Rifles. And I go down to Maryland and for months, like as soon as registration opened for this match, I'm gonna sign up for it. I did for months I've been coordinating with the match director. Like, hey, I'm coming down here, I need a place to zero, what day is your zeros, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Guy's like, Yep, Roger that. It's this day, this time. I'm like, hey, I can't get off of work. Can you work with me? Something so that on Saturday morning I have, you know, five rounds to quickly zero confirm, make sure my stuff's good and I'm kind of out of the way. Yep, we've got that for you. Cool. Awesome, dude. I'm going to sign up for your match. I get down there and like, hey, nope, sorry, no zeroing allowed. If I had known that you were going to pull the plug on me last minute being able to zero, I probably wouldn't have gone to your match, dude, because for months, like two or three months, I'm setting up with this with you, having a conversation with you and you pull it. So... Make sure your gun is zeroed. Um, the reason is because I was the reason why my gun wasn't zeroed is I was changing scopes at the time uh, and had it set up that hey I'm going to go down to the match with this scope. This is the scope I'm going to use, but I can't afford it quite yet, so I'll wait until I get closer. Buy the scope, go down zero. I just couldn't get the time off either from work, so I was hoping that he might have worked with me, but I I guess not. So either way, just make sure your gun your gun zeroed. Um, on the topic of zeroing in the precision rifle world. Each stage is about 10 rounds. So if you're going out there, uh, and you know the, the story on the street is that three rounds of zero confirmation and you've got an issue within those three rounds, it's more than likely the gun. 
If you're up to five rounds and you have an issue, it's more than likely the shooter, but it confirms that it's not obviously with the gun. When you get to precision rifle, you're going to shoot a stage that's 10 rounds per stage. So if you go out there to do like some zeroing practice or whatever, you should be doing zeroing practice or grouping practice is what I should say, up to 10 rounds. 10 rounds at a time, check how tight your groups are. If you've got some issues where they're not as tight as you want them to be, it's probably not your gun. It's probably you. You need to sit down, go over the fundamentals of marksmanship or uh, as the army would say now, the elements of the shot process. And I guess when it comes to looking at the elements of the shot process, it's probably a better idea to sit down and actually break them down for the new shooter to understand. Um, however, you know, the four fundamentals of marksmanship is what us old timers know. And that was simple enough. Um, you know, I've ran through the new TC a little bit and I understand where it's coming from, but sometimes I kind of wish we'd go back to the, the four fundamentals of marksmanship. On uh, the Everyday Sniper podcast, um, they had a gentleman on there who's an instructor down at the Army Sniper School now. And he was explaining the elements of the shot process and, and that sort of stuff. And it's, I, I guess it's more of a, a conscious level breakdown so that you understand exactly what's going on. But at the end of the day, it's still the four fundamentals of marksmanship. Side picture, side alignment, breathing, trigger squeeze. And all those things can kind of be worked with. You know, you're, As long as your finger is 90 degrees on the trigger, you're good to go um, If for the most part. If you're breathing... Right, you should be shooting, or finally the trigger should be connecting with the entire mechanism where the gun is firing when you have no air in your lungs. So think of your lungs like a balloon, right? Uh, if the balloon is on a table and it's inflated, and uh, I put my hand on top of it and try to see how stable it's going to be, it's going to wobble all over the place. Instead, I want my lungs to not be like that. I want them to be deflated. So I want them to be just like a deflated balloon. It's flat on the ground. Is there air in the, in, in the balloon? Sure, but it's not unstable on the ground. Same thing with your lungs. And I think, uh, if I remember correctly, and I'll look this data up later, but um, you have a, the average person can have up to 14 seconds, 7 to 14 seconds of not being able to breathe. At that point, you start to kind of lose focus. There isn't enough brain getting to the oxygen, you know, enough oxygen getting to the brain and that sort of stuff. And you begin to have, a, your eyes have a hard time focusing because there is enough oxygen getting the brain circulating through the, the blood system, uh, bloodstream. So when it comes to breathing, something to note is that in the military, they say breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. And everyone assumes or is told and, and thinks at this point that, that that way of doing it is because it's, it's a breathing exercise to help calm you down. And while that is correct, the further breakdown of that is that if you breathe in through your nose, it expands your stomach. And if you breathe in through your mouth, it expands your chest. So your stomach, or the stomach area is what I should say, and I'm not a doctor, I couldn't be like, yep, definitely your stomach. Your stomach won't air. Obviously, it kind of doesn't. But if I'm expanding my stomach, it's not restricted by you know my upper body. It's not restricted by my chest. Um, and it's allowed to expand further so I can hold more air. Um, compared to my chest. My chest doesn't allow my lungs to expand as much. So it's easier to breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth versus if I breathe in through the mouth and out through the nose or out through the mouth again, I'm only getting oxygen that's being restricted through my chest. So I can't expand my lungs enough. So that is why that they say breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. And I'll, I'll get a further breakdown and I just can't remember off right now off the top of my head uh, 
how it has to do with your bloodstream. If I remember correctly, that breathing in through your nose and out through the mouth replaces the oxygen in your bloodstream. But if you are breathing in through your mouth, it replaces replaces the oxygen directly to your brain. So every three or four breaths, you're supposed to take a quick breath and switch into breathing in through your mouth to replace the oxygen into the brain. But uh, I'll double check on that and get back to you guys on the next podcast. Gives you something more to talk about. So, um, so yeah, uh, that's kind of it, I guess, for today's first podcast. We're at uh, almost about 40 minutes. Um, and if you tune in tonight, I, I know I texted a bunch of guys saying, hey, Check it out. I'm going to do some nerd stuff, so hop on the nerd train, and we'll uh, we'll get to it. So kind of some stuff, uh, I don't know, maybe I'll do it in a day or two. Some some stuff we're going to get to about uh, in the next podcast is guests. I'm lining up some good guests for you guys. Like uh, We've got some big-time shooters coming in. Uh, one of my good buddies who I went to sniper school with is a former AMU guy, um, Olympic-level shooter, great guy. I'm actually watching his dog who is around here somewhere, but... Um, We'll have him on the podcast and we'll talk about just the breakdown of fundamentals and, and the collegiate level competing and how that may apply to the tactical aspect of, of marksmanship. We'll talk a little bit about uh, your excellence of competition, how that can apply to the tactical sniper or the conventional sniper, um, your EIC badges as they're known, your President's 100. We'll get into a little bit of that and we'll discuss bullseye shooting and if it's relevant for the modern day sniper. Because I know a lot of local uh, club matches like here, especially here in the Northeast, they're not big, practical precision rifle. Uh, they're not. They're not in favor of it. A lot of the old timers love F class shooting on bullseye, known distances. They don't like known variables. They like to have all the flags out all the way to the targets, um, and that is kind of relevant for the practical shooter in in, in the intermediate sense, not so much necessarily in the long term. But um, we'll discuss some of that in the culture in the Northeast because the culture in the Northeast, where I'm where I'm at in New Hampshire, is very very different compared to you know, out west. I mean, you guys in Utah, Arkansas, Kansas, uh, Texas, even even Colorado, California, Washington, all that whole section. Um, kind of when you when you get to a different time zone, completely different from marksmanship than uh, than the Northeast. And I, I would even argue that the out west precision rifle shooter, or even the out west sniper, is is better trained in terms of experience in the northeast shooter however you come up here for pistol shotgun idpa uspsa three gun i would be hard pressed to find a uh, a northeasterner that uh, wouldn't give you a run for your money but you give them a precision rifle and uh we're uh we're definitely behind the time so we'll discuss all that stuff and uh some more so thanks guys for tuning in to the first episode of the conventional sniper podcast I'm your host, Justin. Make sure to like, subscribe, and tune in next week or next time I do a podcast. Thanks, guys. And as always, from the tall grass, one shot, one kill.